You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage today comes from John 11, verses 17 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall, he yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you lain him? They said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So today we come to one of the most popular claims of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. It's like Christianity on brand, that's what we're known for, eternal life. If there's anything that people think of when they think about Christianity, it's that we believe in eternal life, but as I am thinking through this passage, preparing for this passage, and trying to just settle my heart into this passage, I I fear that we have grown so um, comfortable with the idea of everlasting life, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that amazing claim, that amazing promise. I fear that we've become so familiar with that idea that's lost its power over us. 
John Piper, uh, I heard a, a sermon of his a long time ago, and he, I think, was preaching on this passage, and he opened up his sermon saying this, you will never die. You will never die. You will never die for like one minute straight. <laughs> intense. I'm not that intense. Uh, I'm trying to get there, you know, but one minute of that. And I had a friend who was actually there in person listening to that sermon. He said it started off really awkward. And then halfway through, gradually on the way through, it became powerful because the promise, we will never die. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We'll live forever. What an amazing reality. And honestly, that belief, if you believe that, it really should totally rearrange your life, shouldn't it? Like it should really make a huge difference in the day-to-day shape of your life. Like every decision is impacted by that. Your priorities are impacted by that. The way you spend money is impacted by that. The way you do conversations with other people is impacted by the reality that there is such a thing as eternal destiny. And we who are in Jesus are invited to, to the resurrection, the life in him, eternity with him. So my prayer today is that as we move through this passage, that we be really affected by this. Like a preacher's greatest um, fear is that what they do and prepare and preach is just going to be like agreed with, check the box, yes, that sounds good, and then we leave here totally unaffected by it. My prayer is that we would really, really, really be affected by what we believe, eternal life offered to us in Jesus. And so here's our points for today. We're going to talk about the reality of death and the hope after death and the life that should take place then before death. The reality of death. We have to to face that reality, acknowledge that reality. But also through Jesus, there is hope for life after death. And that should affect today, life before death. So those are our three points. I'm going to pray now. But listen, before I do pray, uh, we have a member here named Garrett. Uh, he, he's been coming here for a long time. He actually uh, is, was engaged and got married this week to his wife, wife, Riley. She'll be moving here shortly. And they've had so much stuff happening in their life, so much suffering happening in their life these days. And right now, what, what's happening for them is Riley's mom uh, had a stroke this last week. She had a tumor in her heart. She had open heart surgery to take that tumor out. And right now, we just got an update this morning, right before I came up here, that her heart's not working the way it should be. It's not pumping blood through her body, and they're growing concerned about the sustainability of her treatment that she's uh, under right now. So I want to pray for our time together, but I also want to lift up, her name's Heather. I want to lift up Heather, Riley's mom, and Garrett's now mother-in-law, together in prayer. So please agree with me in prayer as as we approach our Father, Lord, Father, who has authority over every cell and molecule. You are the God of life and the God of death, over death, authority and domination over death. We come to you now and approach you and ask for mercy and grace right now for Heather. That you would look down from heaven and touch her heart and cause it to be healthy again and restored. That you would show a special grace in this time and um, reveal yourself as powerful, as merciful, as a God who hears and answers prayer, a God who is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. We ask, God, that you would move powerfully in that hospital room, that you would give the doctors insight, wisdom beyond their years, that you would uh, 
have your presence be known there in such a powerful way that your peace would be instilled into every believer's heart. And God, we ask that, like you in this passage say, that you would glorify yourself through this act, that you would heal her, restore her. And God, we trust you in all things. We come to you and we ask as your children, talking to our Father, that you would do us the special favor and hear our prayer and answer it. And Lord, we trust you. We collapse into you. We know you are good. We know you're sovereign. And God, as we think about our time together in this word, we ask, God, that you would teach us that you give us a greater belief in the reality that there is life to come and that that life to come in the age to come would stretch back now into our past and totally change the way we do life. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. Teach us what that means and make it known to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. All right, the reality of death. Let's start there. There's a lot to cover in this passage today, but I want to, to start with the most obvious fact of this story, which is that Lazarus has died. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. The first thing we must establish, starting off together, is that death is the final destination for each and every one of us. And I want to say that and let it linger because it's good from time to time, to stop our busy lives and acknowledge that inevitable fact, that the final destination for each and every one of us is that we will end. And if you've lived long enough, you know that death doesn't play by the rules of our expectations. It's not fair. It doesn't discriminate. It's not partial. It's, not, it's unstoppable. It's inevitable. It can come out of nowhere. It can happen quickly. I'm 32 years old. I think that's pretty young. I graduated high school in 2009, but already multiple people in my graduating class have passed away. I had a friend this last week who, who died. Like Death is inevitable, and we can't make the mistake of denying that, of living in ignorance of that reality. We don't have that luxury. <clears throat> so let me show you something as we continue through the story. Look at verses 18 and 19. I think this is interesting. It says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Now, remember, in ancient culture, you don't cars, you walk everywhere you go. I mean, walking two miles takes a long time. So they're not close to the main hub of Jerusalem. They're on the outskirts, off the grid a little bit. But it says here, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, if you're, if you're um, an original reader, one of John's original readers, there's clues in these verses that show us that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus come from wealth. That this is a wealthy family because if you know that a family two miles out has had someone in their family die, that means you're well-connected. That means you're well-networked, that you know somebody. And also it says many Jews had come out. So it's not just that word has gotten out to, to the main hub, to Jerusalem, to all the region, but it's also that this family likely had enough money to hire a great multitude of mourners. And that would be custom and actually required in the Jewish cultures that you'd have to hire at least two people to come and mourn with you during a passing. The point is worth noting that no amount of money, no amount of wealth, no amount of connections that you have, no amount of advantage that you have can stop the inevitable, the inevitability of death. Now, in 2013, Google launched this new venture to solve death. Google invested 36% of its $2 billion portfolio in life science startups. 
including several ambitious life-extending projects. And the executive who's in charge of this initiative used a football analogy talking about these, these ventures they're getting off the ground. And he said, we're not trying to gain a few yards, we're trying to win the game. And then he was asked why. He said, it's better to live than to die. A few years ago, I read an article in The Atlantic which documented this craze of billionaires like Jeff Bezos who's investing in the fountain of youth, trying to cure death, essentially. And the article ended by saying, it's been said that young people dream of being rich, and rich people dream of being young. One of the most popular lines in American poetry is, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I don't know if you've heard that. But maybe that phrase is, is well known to you, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And the reason why that poem is so popular is because it really does capture the spirit of our age, doesn't it? We resist death. We don't want to die. We want to live endlessly in the youthfulness and in the energy of this moment. We resist death, but it's wise to possess an awareness of the inevitability of death. And if you do that, two things will happen. Two things will happen if you, if you remember death. First, the reality of death, death, it helps you prioritize what really matters. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Remembering death makes us wise. Now think about this with me. In the hustle and bustle of life, we make small things, big things, don't we? We make Big things, things that really matter, small things. We make that error, we make that mistake. So think about it, what makes you anxious? Your job, your income, your budget, your house, your schedule, small things. We make big things. But ironically, those things distract us from the things that matter most. What matters most? Death will make this connect for you. What matters most in life? People matter most. Relationships matter most. That's what makes life rich. People. After all, think about this with me. When you're on your deathbed, your job won't be there. Your income, it won't matter at that point. Your house won't be there. Your schedule won't be there. Friends and family will be there. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you well know that it is people and relationships that are the, that are the only investment of time and energy that have eternal consequence to have eternal return on investment. And so remembering death helps us get our priorities in order. People matter. Relationships, that's the richness of life. Nothing else. Second, another thing will happen. The reality of death should make us ask better questions about life. I think we put off death because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to, it makes us ask questions that we don't want to have to have an answer for. So follow my train of thought here. Death is disturbing, isn't it? Now we're a young church. We have weddings literally all the time. I perform weddings. Taylor performs weddings. Aaron's perform weddings. We perform weddings all of the time. We haven't yet had to perform a funeral here. But if you've been to a funeral, which I'm sure many of you, most of you have been to a funeral, you know that no matter what, it's just an uncomfortable thing to see an open casket. Death, it's unnerving. And even if you're here and you're like not a Christian, you don't believe in God, you're just a materialist, a naturalist, Death is tragic even still, isn't it? I mean, we might want to think it's just the circle of life and it is what it is, but there's like an emotional 
uh, a disturbance that happens when we recognize death for what it is. It is unsettling. And why is that? It's the same reason why we hate cliffhangers or endings that don't suggest a happily ever after. When a story has an ending that implies the story keeps on going, that's deeply satisfying, isn't it? What do stories that imply happily ever after and our distaste for death suggest? It suggests that to end is unnatural. And never ending, that's natural. Death, even though it's common and inevitable, it's unnatural. We, for some reason, in our gut and in our imagination, can perceive of living forever and ever. That's why stories with happy endings that go on forever, that imply never-ending happily forever after, they resonate with us. Now, here's the question, right? Fall in the train of thought. Death makes you ask questions. Why would that be the case? Because we're made by an eternal God for constant and close relationship with Him. We were made for never-ending fellowship with God. So then we carry within us this impulse for eternity. We can imagine enduring life because that's what we were purposed for. Enduring life with God. So if everything in my human experience suggests that death is not the end and there ought to be more, then the question now fundamentally that I have to wrestle with is, what will that life after death be like and how can I attain it? How can I, how can I realize an eternal destiny that's happily ever after. Well, that's what we need to ponder now. So Jesus tells us now about the hope that we have after death that's found in him. So look at Jesus' claim here. Verses 20 through 24, let's continue on in the story. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, if you're reading the story, you read these words, you get a sense here, don't you, that Martha thinks Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. Whatever your father, whatever you ask your father, I know he will give you, she says. You get a sense that Martha believes Jesus is capable of doing that, but she doesn't come out right and say it. She sort of states her hope timidly, leaving room for Jesus to confirm her suspicions about what he can do. And then she reverts to resignation in verse 24 once she hears Jesus say, your brother will rise again. In her mind, what she hears is at the end of time. He'll be resurrected at the end of time, which was the common Jewish belief that there will be the Jewish resurrection at the end of the age. But Jesus' statement here certainly includes that. Jesus believes that. We ought to believe that. That's on one hand what he means, but we already know from the story that Jesus is intending on resuscitating Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Yes, certainly at the end of time. But here in this moment, Jesus is about to perform a miracle and bring back Lazarus from the dead. So what a statement. What gives Jesus the basis to say such a thing? Verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is the resurrection and the life, which means if you believe in him. And what does belief mean? Let's, let's just remember the basics. Belief, it does not just mean I agree with or I subscribe to that. Belief means I bank my life on that. I'm building my life on that sure and steady foundation. That I am arranging all of my life around that central authoritative truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in Jesus, trust in him, follow him. Death will no longer be a problem for you. Death is no longer an issue for those who believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now listen here, this claim, nobody has ever made it before <laughs> in history. No one has said such a thing that Jesus is saying right now. He is saying, claiming, he is the very immortal and eternal nature of God. And belief in him guarantees that, your, that, that the immortal and eternal nature of God will be infused into your human body after you have died and decomposed, and you will be resurrected, recomposed, and immortally indestructible. No one has said such a thing before, but Jesus here is saying that in him, that's what's going to happen. That's what's possible. Now, this is true. If this is true, this transforms death, how we think about death and how we even, how we even encounter death. Death, for those of us who believe in Jesus, it's no longer an enemy. It's a friend. What I mean by that is death actually does us a favor. It transports us to fullness of life. It transports us to happily ever after. Billy Graham, before he died, was quoted as saying, when you hear that Billy Graham has died, don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. That's belief that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It transforms death from an enemy to a friend who's doing us a favor. And let me say one more thing about this claim of Jesus that's really, really important. Every, there's tons of religions that present an afterlife. That's not special. But what is special about the afterlife of Christianity, the one that Jesus is offering and promising, is that it's a total act of grace. All the other religions, it's dependent upon your goodness. There's strings attached to that presentation of the afterlife. It's dependent upon your goodness, if your good outweighs your bad, how you've done in this present life. The wonderful news of Christianity is hope after death offered in Jesus, who is our resurrection and life. It's a total act of grace. It's not dependent upon your goodness. It's not dependent upon your badness. It's dependent upon the one who's promised is dependent upon Jesus. So should we believe him? This is an incredible claim. And it's like too good to be true. So should we believe Jesus and take him up on his claim that there's actually hope after death if we believe in him? We should believe him. And the first backing of this claim is his sincerity. His sincerity. I'm going to point this out to you. Before I do that, though, uh, when I do premarital counseling with, with couples in the church who are getting prepared for marriage, one of our sessions is we talk about 1 Corinthians 13, true love, what biblical love is. 
And, and 1 Corinthians 13 starts off saying, if I speak in the tongues of angels and men, meaning if I'm, I can say all the right things, I can be eloquent and impressive. I, you know, I can just be the most masterful person with what I say, right? I can make bold claims, say all the right things, but then it says, if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Which means, when someone says all the right things, claims the right things in the moment, Jesus here is making a really awesome claim that, that is like the appropriate thing to do in this time to offer hope. If someone's not sincere behind those words, there's not an earnestness, a love behind those words, then eventually they're found out to be a fraud. They're eventually just no better than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. They just become annoying to you because it's empty words and empty promises. Is Jesus' words true? His sincerity, I think, shows us that we can believe him. Look at verses 32 through 35. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Underline that. If you like to do that kind of stuff. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Underline that. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. There it is, underline that word again, deeply moved. He came to the tomb. It was a cave, <clears throat> and the stone lay against it. The word for deeply moved here, uh, outside the Bible, is often used to describe this, the snarling of a horse. When applied to humans, it means anger and indignation and outrage. Jesus here in this moment is outraged. And then the word troubled. You also notice that word troubled. That's best understood to be emotional disturbance. It's been used of Jesus the moment he decides to make his way to the cross. He was troubled in his spirit. It's used of Jesus the moment he's betrayed by Judas. He was troubled as he witnessed that. And so what, what we're seeing here, the visual of Jesus, is he is stirred by this complexity of emotions like sadness and grief that erupts into indignant anger at the sight of weeping, at the sight of this community weeping, at the sight of death. That is what Jesus is outraged by. He's outraged by the sight of the death of his friends and the pain it has caused. And there's commentators say like all sorts of things, like why is Jesus weeping? Why is he troubled? I think the clue is right in the text. Look at verse 36. All who are witnessing Jesus, outraged and weeping, say, see how he loved him. They see Jesus fuming and conclude. They see, uh, think about this. They see Jesus outraged and they conclude that, man, he must have loved Lazarus. Now, how is anger classified as love? <clears throat> it's because anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is anger is the evidence of what you love. You know what you love based upon what moves you to fierce wrath. Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and that's why he hates death. That's why he hates what he is seeing. And recall, Jesus shows us perfectly what God is like. 
God loves us, and that's why God hates death. So I want you to remember something. Let's get theological. Let's remind, let's remind ourselves of the big picture of the, of the Bible story. When God created humanity, we were created out of the overflow of abundant love between Father, Son, and Spirit. God didn't create us because He needed us. God created us because He, because he has more than enough love to give. The love that was had in the divine fellowship between the Trinity, he wanted us to share in him. We were created, purposed for love, so that we might know God's love. But when our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke trust with God and sinned, death was introduced into our dimension, into our bodies, and now we experience what? Alienation. We experience alienation from God. So presently, right now, sin keeps us from realizing God's original intention of close, continuous fellowship with Him. And death is the ultimate realization of our separation from God. It's the punctuation at the end of the statement, we are alienated from God, period. And so because God loves us, He fiercely opposes death because it's the interruption of his intentions between him and us. So Jesus here, as he says, I'm the resurrection of life, your brother will rise again. He isn't just virtue signaling or saying the right thing in a moment. He is emotionally invested because he, as God in flesh, generally loves us and therefore hates death and opposes death. So his claim of being the source of eternal life, it's validated by his earnestness and his sincerity in this moment. But let me just say this. Again, big picture. Jesus is so earnest about his love for us and his hatred of death that drove him not just in this moment to raise Lazarus from the dead, it drove him to die for us, to taste death in our place so that we would never have to die. The death consequence that we earned was absorbed by Jesus so we could find ourselves never in the clutches of death, but always in the comfort of God's love. That original design and intention for humanity to walk in continuous fellowship with God, Jesus died to restore that to each and every single one of us. His love for us in this moment vanquishes death. But that's just a partial revelation of the Father's heart for us, the full display of God's glory, of His love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the third day, He was resurrected from the grave, so we would never have to fear death. In fact, death became our friend. So it makes a huge claim. And there's an earnestness behind it. But earnestness, it's good, but it's not enough. There has to be power, there has to be evidence, there has to be display, and that's what Jesus shows us now, his power, his power over death, which validates his claim. Verses 39 through 44, read with me, continue on through the story. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, 
that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now we, um, my family and I, we live in Edgewater, which is off the grid for Annapolis, okay? It's rural, okay? So sometimes that means when I have a phone call, the phone call drops. It happens actually pretty frequently, and it's kind of, it's kind of frustrating. But Jesus doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have that issue. His range <laughs> extends to the depths of Sheol, to the depths of the grave. And in the Jewish worldview, the grave, Sheol, that was the place of the dead where they waited. The unrighteous went to Hades, the righteous went to Abraham's bosom. And notice here in the story, Lazarus has been dead four days. Very important detail. This is all written so we know the power of Jesus, the absolute domination of Jesus over death. Because the Jewish belief was that the spirit of a person would hover above their bodies for three days, in case the possibility that could, it could reunite with the body. But by the fourth day, decomposition would begin to set in, which is why they say he had begun to smell at this point. And by then, the spirit would leave to the dimension of the dead and never return to the body because it was too late. Jesus waits till it's too late so that he can display his power over death. And so, at the word of Jesus' mouth... He speaks into the depths of the grave and commands Lazarus' spirit to reunite to his body and resuscitates him. In fact, commentators say that the reason why Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come out, is because if Jesus had just said, come out, then everybody would have come out of the grave at that moment. So he had to specify, this goes to show the absolute authority, dominance, power Jesus has over death. The best way to understand this act is through the lens of creation. God spoke matter into being, and at the word of his utterance, he fashioned matter into creation. But Hebrews 1 gives us a little behind the scenes on how that actually played out. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things. Now look here, through whom also he created the world. So here's what I think this means. That the, again, the Father, Son, Spirit, in that, in that Trinitarian conversation, in that loving relationship they had with one another, the Father and the Son are having this conversation. And from the creativity and ingenuity of that conversation, creation flows forth from their conversation. The Father says, what do you think about creating puppies for them? And the Son says, yes, let's do it, and speaks and goes forth. The absolute power of Jesus' word to speak forth something out of nothing and make something into everything. The voice of Jesus recreates. I just want to pause and say this too. If you're here weak, struggling, maybe in addiction or in sin, just walking in sin and death, did you know that this same power that, that can resurrect somebody from the dead can be applied to your state right now? That Jesus can speak to you and change you and transform you if you would just believe in him and yield to him? He has all 
power, all authority, all dominion. And one day, when Jesus returns, the same voice that calls Lazarus forth from the dead will call each and every one of us from the dead, our dying, decomposed bodies in the sand and the dirt for maybe centuries at that point will be taken up from the ground and will be caught up in the air with him and we will live for him forever. Glorified human bodies, indestructible and immortal forever at the word of his mouth. We read this morning, First Thessalonians 4, at his voice, like the sound of a trumpet will be caught up in the air with him. Do you believe Jesus' claim? I'm the resurrection and the life. Look at his love, his earnestness. Not empty words, he really means it. It drove him to the cross. But also look at the display of power. The same act of creation at the beginning of time, the act here now is the one he will perform. And so this should reshuffle our life. Our choices should be defined by our hope Our priorities should be reoriented by our hope. And so my question now I want to end with is, what should our present life look like before death? This is what awaits for us after death. It's majestic and wonderful. But is there a difference that should make now? I think so. Let's look again at verse 44. See Lazarus here. he, He stands as he broadcasts something to us. Uh, the man who had died came out, his hands and, uh, and feet bound with linen strips, the face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The stone was removed. The tomb was departed. The linens were removed. Lazarus lives and death was left behind. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and has overcome death, this means we have victory. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We have victory. And so that I just want to say all that to ask you this. Do you believe this? He asked Martha that, remember? Do you believe this, Martha, that your brother will rise again? Do you believe this? And not just nodding and agreeing, like even the demons believe in God and shudder. Do you bank your life on this? Does it make a day-to-day difference in your life and what you love and value and prioritize? Does it affect your decisions? So let's end here now, just for a few minutes, talking about an honest examination of our lives. So if this is true, then there should be a difference. If this is true, then there should be a difference. So first, if there is hope after death, then receive this free gift of salvation. So I I know we live in a time where judgment, exclusivity, it's unpopular. But you must remember this, that God is good and that God is just. And if God is good and God is just, he must and he will oppose what is not good and what is not just. And so listen here, each and every single one of us have broken God's law, his standards. We stand before him guilty. That's true whether you like it or not or believe it or not or feel it or not. So if you don't care about that, there's also another standard that you break, another standard you don't keep, which is your own conscience. Like your own standards you don't abide by. And so you're guilty according to yourself. Before God, you're guilty. Before yourself, you're guilty. And here's also the biblical picture of our choices, like our wrong choices that we make. 
Yes, we're held personally responsible for them, and we're held accountable for that and guilty for that, but our sinful choices are also contributing to the greater whole of sin all around us, because with each and every choice you make that is out of harmony with God's wisdom and His law, you participate and contribute to injustice and immorality and unraveling of people and society and all kinds of destruction. And so we are guilty on our own sin, and we're guilty because of what we've created. And God is good, and God is judge. And therefore, there is eternal consequences. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. For those who believe in Him, we live for Him with Him forever. But also, hell is real. An attorney is real. Eternal judgment is real. Eternal consequence is real. And so we have to recognize that. God the judge will render the fair verdict. And here's the thing. He'll give you exactly what you want. If we live our lives in our own control, trying to keep God out of it, trying to be independent and autonomous because we don't want authority, we don't want to have to submit to God's vision for life, God's going to give us exactly what we want forever which is separation from him. He's going to say, very well, you're going to have ultimately what you want forever. But here's the good news. God is not just a judge. He's kind. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That same judge is not so proud to keep his mercy and grace and love to himself. He offers it right now for you. So if you're here and you're seeking, curious, today is the day. Today can be the day that you no longer fear death, but it becomes your, your friend, a passageway to your hope forever, life with God. Secondly, if there's hope after death, you should feel compelled to share the gospel with others. If you really think eternal destiny is real, either in the presence of God or apart from God in hell, then your priorities should reflect that. And again, <clears throat> we get so wrapped up in things that don't matter. Uh, we're so drained and consumed by things that, that are unimportant in the grand scheme of things. We get so wrapped up in our jobs and our busy schedule. And my concern, even as I look at my own life, is that my protection of my own time and my uh, busyness and my obsession with my work has left very little time and energy for me to create conversations and space with other people who need to know about the love of God in Christ. And so if you really believe that there is hope after death, that should make an impact on your priorities. Are you carving out space in your life to have those gospel-centric conversations with people who don't know God? Who are far from God. And listen, listen, listen. You're hearing this right now, and you might be thinking to yourself, not me, I'm not good at it. Not me, I'm not skilled at it. Someone else would cover that. Someone else is gifted at that. Someone else, someone else is more experienced with that. Everyone here in that room is thinking that right now. <laughs> and so it has to be you. It's not going to be somebody else. God's calling you. God's put you where you're at in your neighborhood, in the family you're in, in the office you're in, for a purpose, to, to have these conversations. And so there should be an urgency. We don't have all the time in the world. So if there's hope after death, you should feel an urgency and you should feel compelled to share the gospel with others. And you don't have to do it perfectly. Uh, you're not judged based upon your performance. The outcome is for God. God's at work all around us. The outcome is His. Just be faithful. Third, 
If there is hope after death, the hope of the age to come, it should shape your life now, your priorities, what you value. So I'm going to read a few New Testament scriptures here. I think that just drive home this point. And again, this is honest self-examination of our lives. If we really believe there's hope after death, it should change things now. 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, it's not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. In the world, it's passing away. With its desires, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The point is, if an observer were to look at your life, what do you think they would say about what you value? What do you think they would say is the location of your hope? Stuff? Wealth? Comforts and materials? Or people? Relationships? The treasures that are stored up for us, that's souls. That's other people we love and who God loves. And you know what is a powerful witness? Contentment. Contentment. Not needing much. Not being dominated by the things of this world. A a, a content life, it just bears witness to the fact that Jesus is my treasure. And that gives credibility to all of your words. You're saying, I invite you into Jesus. I invite you into the resurrection, the life. But if your life is just cluttered with stuff that's Lord of your life, stuff that you think you need to give you security and comfort, that seems to invalidate the claim that Jesus is everything, that Jesus is my life. There's something to be said for a simplistic, minimalistic life that's free from the attachments of the world. It's a powerful witness, gives credibility to your words. Fourthly, lastly, if there is hope after death, there, if you believe that, there should be present <clears throat> transformation. And so I want to return to 25 and 26, John 11, 25 and 26 to end here. Jesus says to her, examine this with me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, and that will happen, yet he shall live. Okay, future tense referring to eternal life, post-resurrection. But look what he says next in verse 26. And everyone who lives, that's present tense. And it's the same word in the Greek that he just used for eternal life, which means Jesus is saying that eternal life we're going to have one day, you possess it now. The life of the age to come, it abides within you now. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now death, biblically speaking, it's not only physical death. Death is a spiritual idea. Every day apart from Jesus, we're dying, and that is punctuated by physical death. What Jesus is saying here is, if you believe in me and trust in me, 
that powerful resurrection life that's going to be applied to your dead body and then live in you forever, it's already alive in you now, changing you. You're truly living and you're no longer spiritually dying. You're spiritually being resurrected. So the question you have to ask yourself is, am I, am I, am I undergoing transformation? Is there measurable victory in your life over sin? Have you, have you changed in the orders of, of your love and your heart? Or are your loves and values out of whack? We should become more like the people we will be forever already. That future version of ourself, glorified, should be emerging even now by the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection that's being applied to us now. If there's hope after death, there should be present transformation. Friends, <coughs> we believe some tremendous things. We're going to live forever, like in flesh, with one another, glorified and destructible humans in the presence of God. No more sin, no more limitations. Amazing. My hope is that the sermon isn't just check the box. I agree with that. But walking out of here, I want to be changed by this. I want to live according to what I believe. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus so that we no longer fear death, we no longer don't think about death, we no longer try to avoid death, but instead, Lord, death is the passageway to life eternal. We ask you, Father, to increase our faith to believe this. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, for rising again, for giving us all the evidence we need to put our trust in you. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.